This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is Jessica Zhu. I am an assistant professor of religion at University of Southern California at Northside and the New Books Network host in Buddhist Studies. Today, we are very lucky to have Dr. Trent Walker from Stanford University to talk with us about his new book, Until Nirvana's Time, Buddhist Songs from Cambodia. It was published by Shambhala in 2022. And what Professor Kate Crosby at Oxford University described as the first major literary translation of Cambodian Buddhist literature into English. So welcome, Trent. Thank you for your careful collection, notation, and translation of 45 amazing Khmer language songs from the 17th to 20th century. So compared to your dissertation titled Unfolding Buddhism, which can be downloaded from your website at www.trendwalker.org and contains, here wait for it, 1,651 pages. So this book, you know, is tiny, it's little, and it's very concise. It's only 337 pages. It's based on a small selection from your massive dissertation research and grew out of your years of training as a performer of these Dhamma songs. So uh, before, you know, asking questions, I just want to prime uh, our New Books Network audience that this book has a companion website on, you know, this uh, Trent Workers um, <clears throat> webpage, you know, with the vocal recordings of some of the Dharma songs in both Khmer and English translation. This is because these Dharma songs belong to a living tradition. Instead of being read in silence, they are transmitted to us today by generations of performers and are meant to be recited with complex melodies and to be performed according to the ritual cycles of Cambodian Buddhist communities. For interested listeners, you can find in the blog post of this episode on New Books Network all the relevant links. 
So this tiny book um, is divided into three parts. Part one are the songs. That's the translation of the 45 Dhamma songs without footnotes or translator's notes. It's just the songs themselves arranged in four sections. Narrating life um, that contains 18, repaying debts contains 10 poems, and befriending death, that's eight poems, and chasing peace, that's nine songs. So each section is open, open, also open with a one-page intro. For readers only interested in the poetic beauty, these translations speak for themselves. However, for those of us who are more interested in the Buddhological details and the ritual life of these poems, or those who are more curious about how the poetics and the technical aspect of these um, Khmer language poetries work, you can read each song along with the detailed notes in part three, and readers who want to gain a bird's eye view of Cambodian Buddhism and this language can also check out the full, concise, and very accessible essays in part two. In particular, for readers who want to nerd out about the meters, melodies, rhymes, I highly recommend the fourth essay, especially on page 220 to 222, where Trent decodes how the complicated rhyme system, rhyme structures in the songs work and how he managed to reproduce at least some of the rhyme patterns in his English translation. Um, it just blows my mind. So as a teacher, I also truly value this translation, the recordings, they open up a rare window to let a living tradition speak on their own terms and to enable students interested in learning from Buddhism and from different cultures to engage with them empathetically, not merely muted as museum pieces to be engaged with only critically. And this sounds also helped me, and I hope many others, break out the narrative scarcity about Buddhism in the sense that Buddhism is not just about, you know, full noble truths, letting go of desires, no self-emptiness to truths. It has a rich emotional life and emotional education is part and parcel of Buddhism as a living tradition in each and every local community. I also want to comment that typically translation nowadays are not valued as scholarship per se, because, you know, as academics, we prefer to reward so-called argumentative writings. And in general, I think American publishing industry does not publish translations. So I'm just very grateful that you, Trent and Shambhala and everyone involved in this project took the trouble to make this happen. Thank you very much. And for listeners and readers, I hope this interview and this book could help at least some of us to ask the following questions. Whether we should recalibrate our expectations about what and how we learn and what counts as knowledge and with whom and for whom we should produce it. So Trent, I'd like to start our interview with the traditional New Books Network question. Could you please tell us a bit more about yourself, how you came to research on this rich living tradition and this amazing world full of effective bonds? Thank you so much, Jessica, for that exceptionally warm and generous welcome. It's a real pleasure to be with you here, as well as with everyone listening uh, to the New Books Network. I came to the study of Cambodian Buddhism when I spent a year after high school in Cambodia working for an organization called Cambodian Living Arts. I was already, in a sense, connected to both the study of Buddhism academically and as a lived religion through my experiences in high school in San Francisco, as well as to 
the Cambodian language through a man on the maintenance staff of my high school, Mei Po Amo, who I spent time learning uh, a little bit of the Khmer language from. But really, the introduction that I got to Cambodian Buddhism and to the research that forms the basis for this book began in 2005. And there I spent half a year uh, working with Cambodian Living Arts, an arts organization that at the time was quite focused on arts education and also doing research and archival work on Cambodian music. And with them, I did research on the intersection between Buddhism and music in Cambodia, focusing particularly on this tradition of Dharma songs, Thuobot or Smot in Khmer. For the initial part of my time in Cambodia, I spent about half a year living in a village, Pum in Kapong province, um, around 40 kilometers southeast of the capital of Phnom Penh, with the family of Phnom Ut, a lay chanting master, and nearby to the village of Gao Ran, another chanting master with whom I studied. And the two of them were my real introduction into the study of this intersection between Buddhism and music. Later on in the second half of that year, before I went to college, I ordained temporarily as a novice monk at a monastery in Simriap, also in Cambodia. And that gave me some insights into other dimensions of chanting traditions within Cambodia in particular and with, within the Theravada tradition more broadly. But it was really these lay-centered chanting traditions that today are more frequently uh, one hears women performing in, in Cambodia today, these dharma songs uh, that really drew me in from the start. And when I returned to the United States to go to college, and then later on in graduate school, I continued to pursue the academic study and research on this tradition. It was something that, for me, allowed me to address the questions I was interested in most. Uh, That is, what is happening in this encounter between Buddhist texts and sound? What are the ways in which sound, particularly the human voice, allows us to get a different angle on what's happening in Buddhist scriptures, uh, different forms of Buddhist literature, and in the living traditions of Buddhist rituals? The particulars of this book actually came together quite a bit later. You mentioned my dissertation in your your introduction, and that, that was really a study of a particular manuscript format. Later on during my dissertation research, I got uh, quite involved in the study and conservation and digitization of manuscripts in Cambodia. And I was focusing on a particular format, the leporello or krang format in Khmer, which is a traditionally a bark pulp folded paper format. And these are one of the most important media for the transmission of these melodic chants or dharma songs in the Cambodian context. And they may be circulated at the village level between monasteries and also among lay people uh, in order to record many of the texts that are used as part of this tradition. 
And in the process of studying these manuscripts, I transcribed and translated uh, many of the, the texts that they contained. And it was that portion of the dissertation, in a sense, as you mentioned, the portion that was concerned with the addition of texts or with their translation, not the analytical portion of the dissertation, which was focused on questions of end-of-life practices in Cambodia and another portion focused on issues of language. But it was really these translations that I wanted to make sure there was a kind of home for them, that they could have a place in the world that might not be in the academic idiom that sustains my life as a scholar, but in some other idiom that might be able to connect with people. And the impetus in a most immediate sense for this book was talking to Cambodian Americans, particularly those more familiar with English than Khmer, who really wanted to connect with the Buddhist traditions of their parents, of their grandparents, of their ancestors, but didn't know where to begin. And as a performer in this genre of smolt uh, or dharma songs in Khmer, I am often performing in Cambodian American communities or sometimes uh, in Cambodia and felt this sense of responsibility of this, this call to translate texts to make them available in particular ways. I had done some of that before through this bilingual website, Stirring and Stilling, uh, that collected 16 dharma songs. And as you mentioned, that link from my website, I'll trentwalker.org slash dharma songs um, includes the recordings in Khmer and English I did for that project. For Until Nirvana's Time, Buddhist Songs from Cambodia, though, I really wanted to create something that allowed longer texts to be able to have this life on the page so people could access the depth of the tradition uh, through the its, its written expression in literary translations into English, as well as the kind of accompanying material. And for that, as you mentioned, it's it's rare to get a chance to publish that kind of book. I'm really grateful to Shambhala Publications for making this kind of book uh, possible. It's really a dream come true, certainly for me, um, certainly for my teachers in Cambodia, who's instilled in me from the very beginning that the reason they wanted to spend the time and effort and dedication they took to train me was to be able to share this particular Buddhist tradition with a wider audience, one that they saw as relevant, not just within the Cambodian context, but for humanity at large. And I hope that it's also useful for the people in communities that were the most direct inspiration for this book, that is uh, Cambodian Americans, uh, particularly uh, Buddhists who want to be able to connect with this dimension of their tradition. Thank you so much, Trent. This is such a rich, um, I don't know, just totally blow my mind about why do we do produce knowledge? It just help me to rethink, right? It's not about, you know, getting a tenure and getting a job. Like that's the you know, published parish kind of a narrative. But this is totally different sense of responsibility um, and gratefulness for all the teachers who put um, time and care into training us so that this tradition lives on. So thank you so much for doing this. 
Um, so before uh, we get into details, could you please maybe help us understand the state of scholarship um, about Southeast Asian Buddhist literature, especially this sort of non-canonical, as you, you mentioned, the manuscript you study circulated at the village level. Um, and they're probably often dubbed as the so-called vernacular literature and how Arabic um, pushed this field forward. Buddhist literature in mainland Southeast Asia and the broader area in which I work is transmitted in a number of classical and vernacular languages. The most important classical languages in this context are literary Chinese, that is particularly in Vietnam, and then Pali and to a much lesser extent Sanskrit in Cambodia, Thailand, Laos, and Myanmar. Then there are many texts that combine uh, multiple languages together. Uh, particularly a classical language and a vernacular language. That's actually the subject of my current research project, and maybe we might talk about that a little bit later. But then in addition to texts that either are in Pali, say in the Theravada Buddhist context in Cambodia, Thailand, Laos, and Myanmar, or combine Pali, sections in Pali with sections in a vernacular language. There are also texts that are transmitted, that are composed entirely in vernacular languages, such as Khmer or Khmer, the national language of Cambodia, Thai or Central Thai, the national language of Thailand, Lana or Northern Thai, Lao and its closely related cousin, Isan or Northeastern Thai, Thai Khun, Thai Lu, Shan, Burmese, Arakanese, and, and other languages that are used to transmit uh, Theravada Buddhist texts within the mainland Southeast Asian context. Some of these vernacular language texts are translations of Pali texts. Others are really composed locally and according to local ideas and inspiration, local perspectives on the Buddhist tradition. And many, of course, are some combination of both. They're drawing inspiration from canonical and commentarial poly sources, but they're also extending and reworking it in all kinds of ways. When we speak of Buddhist literature in Southeast Asia in, written in the vernacular, oftentimes scholars make distinctions between that which is transmitted at elite levels, particularly in different court circles among the different kingdoms of Southeast Asia between the um, 12th and 19th centuries, for instance. Or one might also speak of texts that circulate at non-elite levels, that circulate among uh, people who may not be literate, that circulate um, in monasteries that might be far from the capital or that exist within traditions practiced by both monastics and lay people. And for all of these different types of really non-Pali um, vernacular literature, in the case of Vietnam, uh, non-literary Chinese uh, Buddhist literature, there's been very little that's been translated into modern non-Southeast Asian languages, um, for, for instance, very little that's been translated into English, French, Japanese, Chinese, etc. And there's also been very few studies on these kinds of local literatures. Most of the most sophisticated and 
intense and ongoing kinds of studies of vernacular literature in Southeast Asia, including vernacular Buddhist literature, are within the framework of national literary traditions. So Thailand is a good example of this. Sort of the formation of the Thai literary canon, which includes a number of Buddhist works, for instance, a number of verse versions in Thai and sometimes in a bilingual poly-Thai format of the Vasantra Jataka and other key Buddhist works, formed part of the Thai national literary canon as it was established in the 19th century and have continued continued to become the subject of many articles, dissertations, books within the Thai academic context since that time. So within that particular academic arena, there's actually a lot of study of, of vernacular Buddhist literature. And in the past 30 years, there's been an increasing interest among Thai academics in local forms of Buddhist literature, whether literature composed in local languages like Lana in Northern Thailand or in Isan dialects or various Lao dialects from Northeastern Thailand, or simply texts that were transmitted outside of elite circles in Thailand that one might find being transmitted up to the present in oral traditions, etc. But that study, even though it's been going on for the past 30 years or so, is really still just in its infancy. In other words, even in a country like Thailand, which among the different uh, places that I, my research is most connected to in mainland Southeast Asia, has probably the most uh, developed um, academic system for the study of Buddhism and Buddhist literature um, in the vernacular context, uh, is it's still quite difficult to construct any kind of history of non-elite literature and even in the case of the Cambodian texts that I'm looking at, a number of these are translated from Thai originals. And the evidence for that shows up sometimes in the Cambodian manuscripts themselves or other times when able to find and identify Thai parallels. But those Thai parallels are very difficult to find because in most cases, they're not part of any established canon of Thai Buddhist literature because they belong to this class of texts that existed really in local monasteries that people memorized, that were on people's lips for, for decades, for centuries in some cases, that were part of how people framed their engagement and their inspiration in a whole variety of Buddhist practices. But were not necessarily canonized, were not necessarily printed uh, during the huge rise in print in the late 19th, early 20th century across mainland Southeast Asia. And so the Cambodian texts are, that I translate in this book are perhaps even more that way. Um, they're something that has not been accessible for the academic study of Buddhism outside of Southeast Asia. And the reasons for that are several. One is that many of these texts, again, are either orally transmitted or only passed down through manuscripts. And so the process of cataloging Buddhist manuscripts, of digitizing them is something that's very much in, still an ongoing process. And there's not that many scholars either in Southeast Asia, perhaps with the exception of Thailand, um, who are actively engaged in these kinds of projects. Secondly, 
in the absence of even local language histories or frameworks for understanding vernacular Buddhist literature, I think it's difficult when writing in other non-Southeast Asian languages, say English, to just begin to get a handle on this literature. My work is just on one of many genres in the Cambodian Buddhist context, and very few of those genres have been studied in any depth. Sort of one exception is studies of this esoteric meditation tradition in Cambodia, and the accompanying texts of that have begun to be studied in considerable depth in recent decades. But most of the other genres of Buddhist literature, all the texts used for sermons or for telling Buddhist stories or for articulating the tenets of Buddhist doctrine as cosmology, what monastics used to study over the past centuries, um, very little of that has been really read in recent decades, you know, much less studied by either by Cambodian scholars or by people working outside of Cambodia. So really then this pattern kind of holds true across mainland Southeast Asia, the study of vernacular Buddhist literature, the literature that really can show us the links between the rich anthropological studies of Buddhist societies in Southeast Asia and the canonical Buddhist tradition studies of this vernacular literature are still very young, still need to develop much more. And I, I think in the decades to come, we're all going to learn a lot, particularly from what scholars in Southeast Asia are producing as more of that gets translated into English, but also um, those of us who are trying to make these kinds of Buddhist traditions more legible within the broader scope of Buddhist studies. Thank you so much, Trent. This just makes me appreciate your dissertation and this book and your coming work much more. Just knowing that um, existing research is mostly in the framework of national literature. And then so things like, it just blew my mind, right? This Khmer language manuscript can be based from Thai and then but then there's also canonical and then so there are lots of intra Southeast Asian or intra Asian kind of transmissions that we don't even know like preserved on people's lips in local monasteries that need to be done. So for any aspiring scholars who are interested in learning those fascinating languages and traditions Here's your chance. This field is so young, so much more. So um, thank you again. Let's move on to part one, section one, narrating lives that contains 18 poems recounting key events in the historical Buddhist life. But with an emotional richness that rarely seen elsewhere, maybe other than some of the Jataka stories that some of the songs are based on. But one example that touched me personally is the poem number 10, Maya's Lament. It sings a mother's sorrow. So this story goes, a Maya in heaven, now so the Buddha to be, who had tortured himself to the brink of death with his, you know, extreme ascetic practices. She just descended from heaven and, you know, spoke to his son, here I just quote, it's not right for you to die alone here in the forest. Better it be to perish in your father's grand palace. Flesh barely covers your bones, your eyes clouded like a corpse. Can't you see your own mother? Why aren't you answering me? And the Buddha-to-be, you know, he whispered because he was too weak, said, Oh, mother, my debt to you is greater than all murder. 
I beg you, dearest mother, my own master, please don't cry. So this kind of intense affection, intense bonds between mother and son is rarely, is you know, just rarely presented in the canonical literature. So Trent, please tell our listeners when you, you know, when you made this difficult choices, what to include and what to exclude in the selection, what do you want to convey through this particular selection? And maybe also tell us what you exclude here, what you've excluded here and why. Before jumping into a response to your question, I think there are so many fascinating layers in that question. Let me just recite a little bit of the beginning of that song that you just read those excerpts for us, just so we can bring in the oral dimensions for this tradition. บ่ดาอ้ายอ้ายเก่าหน้าเอ็นเอ็งสกอมอวัยมะเล็งหน้ามะดายสดายเนี่ยงเป่งอัดอุปมาThis song, like so many others in that first section, are among the ones that Cambodian Buddhists, particularly in the 20th century and into the 21st, have cherished most in retelling the life narrative of the Buddha. And as you pointed out, songs like this often emphasize the most emotional episodes in the life of the Buddha, whether in his final life as Siddhartha Gautama or in previous uh, lives in the various Jataka narratives. And there's one side of that that might feel a bit fragmentary. In other words, we don't have a retelling in this section or in any of the songs that I didn't include in this section that are also retellings of the Buddhist life of the whole story from beginning to end. But rather we have these episodes that zoom in on particular affective bonds between the Buddha and those closest to him in his life. So encounters between the Buddha and his mother, uh, between the Buddha and his aunt, between the Buddha and his attendant Ananda, between the many ways in which the lives of Bimba Yasodhara, the partner in samsara of the Buddha and his wife in his final existence, the way their lives become uh, woven together through uncountable kalpas is really what the tradition itself focuses on. And at first, I think I was a bit bewildered by this. You know, I wondered like, why are there not so many texts about the Buddha preaching this or that sutta, for instance? There are very, very few dharma songs in this tradition that go into such doctrinal moments of the Buddhist teaching career. 
why instead is it these moments of of loss, these moments of tenderness, these moments of connection that are instead most emphasized? And I think there are two ways to think about why the tradition structures itself in this way. The first is a kind of aesthetic choice. And one of my teachers, uh, Gao Ran, uh, she is the, the teacher who really introduced me into her perspective on the aesthetic grounding of the Dharma song tradition. And when I asked her these kinds of questions like, you know, why these songs? Why only these episodes? Her response was that the purpose of Dharma songs is to elicit this sense of what's known in Khmer as Sakrai Samweg, uh, which is the Khmer translation of Sangvega in Pali or Sanskrit. And this term, Samvega, literally means to be shaken to be stirred, to be shocked at the core. And so it's those moments in the life of the Buddha where there is loss, where there is grief, where there's these kinds of bonds being strained in some way across the boundaries of birth and death, across the boundaries of the ways in which the Bodhisattva path itself, as understood in the Theravada tradition, strains any possible kind of familial relationship. And by eliciting this sense of samvega, it can lead to this complementary aesthetic experience of what's known in Khmer as Sakrajretla or Prasada uh, or Prasada in, in Pali or Sanskrit, which is this sense of settling, this sense of calming, of clear faith, of clarity, um, that once within the framework of the tradition, one has been shocked by the reality of impermanence, uh, that there is space for a settling uh, within the luminosity of the three jewels. And so the way that Gao Ran articulated this tradition to me has been something that I've thought might be useful to apply in the the scholarship that I've done on this tradition, including trying to see the ways in which certain melodies, like the melody I recited for that particular text on the lament of Queen Maya, um, might be constructed with its own musical characteristics to elicit within the Cambodian context uh, this experience of Samvega, whereas other melodies might be tied to the calming of of Basada. So really, it was was easy to choose the songs in this section because the Khmer tradition had already laid them out in such a way. In each individual manuscript that contained these texts, they weren't always the same text, there's a, you know, dozens more that are also telling the life of the Buddha. But I really wanted to focus on the ones that were the most beloved 
by Cambodian audiences, the ones that showed up most frequently in manuscript collections, and the ones that have become associated with particular melodies, like the melody for that one I just recited, is named after this very text, even though it can be applied to a number of other texts. And so I tried to have a balance of Jataka narrative. So within that section, there is some uh, texts uh, related to Jatakas. Let me just recite a brief uh, excerpt of, of one of those. Um, and this is from the Visantara Jataka. And this particular text is known as uh, or in this case, I've translated it as Lullaby of the Gods. This is when Visantara has already given away his children uh, Krishna or Kanha and, and Jali um, to uh, Jujaka, the, the Brahman. And the children are alone. They're being terribly abused by Jujaka. And in this moment of grief and despair for the children, uh, devas come down and take the form of Vasantra and his wife uh, Madhi, um, to recite this kind of lullaby to lull the children to sleep. So it's one of the most uh, tender moments in the Vasantar Jataka. Again, out of this whole long story, one of the few moments that are really brought out in the Cambodian tradition. And this particular text, I'll just recite it in English in a way that matches the same melody and syllabic structure in the original Kamai. Oh, what rooster are you crowing, crowing near our heart? Hey, Krishna, oh, Krishna, hey, Krishna. My dearest child, don't you cry. Mama's here, Mama's here, singing you to sleep. Wow, Ken, thank you so much. Um. It just, you know, adds depth to my understanding of why your research question is just like the encounter of the text and sound and what is the role of human voice. I just, when you, when you, you know, sing the songs, I really just, I don't know the words, especially the first one, but this kind of feeling of shaken at the core, that experience is just so unique. Only human voice can achieve that kind of effect. Thank you for articulating the aesthetic grounding of the whole Dharma Sang tradition for us. Um, so in the interest of time, let's move on to section two, repaying debts. This is my favorite, favorite section. Um, here in the short one-page introduction, you mentioned the key concept of guna in Pari or guna in Khmer, or you call it Khmer. I'm not sure like what's the difference in the pronunciation, but I'm going to keep calling it Khmer because that looks like so, you know, guna or gun is both virtual and that of gratitude. 
And to my surprise, you know, goodness is expressed in terms of the so-called heart syllabus in some of the songs that draw on the esoteric dimension of Cambodian Buddhism. So this is maybe, you know, common knowledge for expert in Southeast Asian Buddhism. But the history and importance of esoteric Buddhism in the so-called Theravada countries, um, for me, is a surprise. I just feel shocked to know that, you know, Theravada also has esoteric tantric practices that we typically associate with Tibetan Buddhism. How did that happen? And why? So, for example, it's the song number 21, the 33 consonants, links each consonant with a particular body part. And 21 parts are gifts from father, and 12 are gifts from the mother. And the benefits for us, you know, for the benefits of us, this uninitiated, could you please explain uh, briefly what are these sort of esoteric practices in Theravada countries and one, how they appeared and became adopted in this kind of a living tradition? First, so this term Khmer or Khmai, these are just different pronunciations of the same word in the Cambodian language. It's as pronounced in Cambodia in most dialects, it's pronounced Khmai, and that pronunciation is often favored in Cambodian diaspora communities. In other dialects, particularly dialects spoken in of Cambodian spoken in Northeast Thailand, uh, the pronunciation may be closer to Khmer. And in the spelling, in the language itself, there is a ro, there is an R at the end. And so when speaking in English, both Khmer, uh, sort of the normal English pronunciation, or Khmer are both perfectly fine. As far as this esoteric uh, tradition goes, there is still no consensus at all in the scholarship about really where it comes from and the specific ways in which it developed in mainland Southeast Asia. But it's been something that increasingly scholars have looked at, have engaged in uh, the study of over the past 40 years or so. And really the entry point for this scholarship uh, began with French language scholarship on Cambodia, particularly the work of François Bizot. And that was continued through others uh, working and continuing to publish in French up to today, such as uh, François Lagirade or Olivier de Bernon or Gregory uh, Kourouski, who have uh, worked on uh, different dimensions of this esoteric tradition in mainland Southeast Asia. The work of Kate Crosby, writing in English, has been particularly important to, one, uh, summarize the many insights in Francophone scholarship surrounding this tradition, um, and then also within her own research connected to both uh, texts in Sri Lanka and very exciting fieldwork that she's been doing in mainland Southeast Asia to try to get a broader Theravada-wide understanding of this particular phenomenon. And there are many uh, different names that might be applied to it. The one that I tend to use is simply esoteric, uh, simply because the other kinds of names might have... Uh, resonances that limit our understanding of the tradition. So for instance, 
uh, if we frame it as tantric Theravada, even though there are many resonances with tantric traditions and Buddhism, Hinduism, etc., um, it sort of implies that there's this kind of direct historical link between uh, Vajrayana practices, which were at a certain period in Southeast Asian history uh, quite prevalent, and the esoteric dimensions of Theravada practices later on, there's still no concrete evidence for any such link there between uh, the introduction of Vajrayana Buddhism to mainland Southeast Asia and later esoteric Theravada practices. But it's, it's clear that this is something that, that developed most likely uh, it, in mainland Southeast Asia initially, and then spread to Sri Lanka during the period in which a lot of uh, manuscripts and ordination lineages traveled to Sri Lanka, that is in the, the 18th century. Um, and that's why the tradition is found there as well, though there may be other dimensions of the um, that scholars today are still exploring of how all the different dimensions of these esoteric traditions are connected. And some of the most exciting scholarship on esoteric Theravada practices today are being undertaken by uh, scholars based in Thailand or scholars from Thailand working elsewhere with a focus on the, the rich dimensions of the esoteric tradition as found in Thai manuscripts. And if one was to ask, what are the basic constituents of this tradition? Uh, to me, why the term esoteric is appropriate is that it connects to a certain set of meditation practices that are designed to be undertaken within the framework of a teacher-disciple kind of guru-shishya relationship that are involve rites of initiation, that involve the teacher withholding certain kinds of knowledge around the progress of the meditation tradition, and then also involve a esoteric practices of manipulation of particular syllables, spheres of light, substances, etc., within the body with the goal of producing a Buddha within. And it's in the particular morphology of this esoteric practices that we see all kinds of parallels with what happens in Vajrayana traditions, for instance. Um, but in regards to the particular song that you mentioned, the 33 consonants, this reflects a, a really key aspect of the esoteric tradition, not only in Cambodia, also in Laos and, and Thailand as well, which are the three main areas where we've seen evidence for this tradition. And that is the relationship between what's known in Pali and Sanskrit as guna, that is quality, virtue, and sort of by extension, this kind of debt, which is the focus of the, the chapter, as you mentioned. But in this context, it refers to this kind of uh, essence that can be expressed and made real through syllables. That is particular akshras, particular consonants, or in some cases vowels, um, which then stand in for particular parts of the body, 
uh, for particular qualities of the Buddha, for particular moments on the path to awakening, the path to Buddhahood uh, within this tradition, um, as well as all the different details of how to practice that in various stages through meditation. And there's a whole kind of generative grammar uh, that's functioning here. Kate Crosby has uh, articulated it in terms of the algebraic function of these syllables and the algebraic logic, a logic of substitution, one that she links back to um, Ayurvedic practices as well as to the grammar of Panini, the Ashtadhyayi and related grammatical traditions in the Sanskrit tradition. And this close link between grammar, medicine, and meditation practices is another kind of hallmark of the esoteric tradition. So why the 33 syllables? These are the number of consonants in the Khmer alphabet. Uh, why 12 parts from the mother, 21 parts from the father? This is according to this Cambodian understanding, also a Lao and Thai understanding, though they're sometimes 32 parts of the body might be enumerated, um, that connects the uh, different organs and uh, substances within the body, those that are considered to be liquid in nature connected to the mother, those considered to be solid in nature connected to the father. Um, and in progressing through these practices of meditation, one must always come back to this fundamental debt of the child to their parents. Um, and the part and parcel of progressing in meditation in this tradition that therefore is to repay those kinds of debts. Um, that particular text frames it as recalling the virtues of the parents as embodied in these syllables that stand in for the parts of the body, the body that is understood to be a gift uh, from our parents. Thank you so much, Chant. Um, it's just like totally um, give me another understanding of what esoteric traditions mean. And I definitely see from your descriptions, the parallels. Um, so this is truly fascinating, but I have a follow-up question. Sound number 20. The 24 vowels is surprising for me for many reasons. For example, each vowel is linked with a certain kind of light, you know, stand in for, you know, the logical uh, in substitution that you just mentioned, right? You have a particular kind of the Buddhist teaching, like could be Abhidharma, could be Vinaya. But personally, I'm most curious about how you manage to learn a language with 24 vowels. And I know you speak fluently several other Southeast Asian or Nasturation um, languages. So um, those kind of sounds, um, it feels like learning them is mission impossible for me. So, you know, I speak Japanese, but it has only five vowels. Mandarin Chinese, my native tongue, six vowels. When I was learning French, which has like 12 vowels, I was cursing daily. Okay, well, I was learning it. So finally I gave up. It's just like, um, there's no way I'm going to speak it. Um, so I just settled with reading, skimming for research, and same thing happened with my learning of Cantonese, which happened to have 11 vowels and then 11 deaf tongues or combination vowels um, just totally killed me. So how did you manage to learn so many 
uh, alteration languages and with such complicated sounds, vowel structures and consonants. And I'm probably too old in the last cause, but any words of encouragement and any tips, tactics for the young listeners who want to start learning these fascinating languages and maybe get into some of the vastly understudied research areas. So it's actually really hard from both the perspective of a language learner and from the perspective of linguistics, particularly phonology as a particular branch within linguistics, to come up with a precise number of the vowels in any given language. And this is particularly true for Southeast Asian languages because the ways in which vowels were counted or enumerated traditionally differ from the ways that linguists today might compute the number of vowels. And so within, say, the, the Khmer language, for instance, in Cambodia, uh, there are two main ways of writing vowels. One, so-called dependent vowels that are can only exist as attached to a consonant, and then independent vowels that can exist on their own without being attached to a consonant. Um, there are different ways of counting the numbers of each, um, depending on, again, the local system, but it adds up to about 50, depending on the different ways they're, they're counted. And then the within the dependent vowels, those that are exist in connection to a consonant, um, they can be um, pronounced usually in two different ways. There's so-called two vowel series in Khmer. So that, in a way, kind of doubles the number of possible sounds. But there are also many overlaps um, between all of these different ways of writing consonants. So it doesn't mean that there's suddenly, say, 75 vowel sounds in, in Khmer. There's something closer to 30. Um, and, you know, I am. I found it very, very hard to learn Mandarin Chinese, and I gave up after a bit. But at, from the perspective of a of a language learner, there are you know far more than just six vowels in in Mandarin. In uh, Pinyin, only six are notated, but um, though there are also allophones that create you know other kinds of of sounds that only exist in complementary distribution, and then there are all the diphthongs that are possible. So the number it begins to ex expand a little bit. And English too has a, a fair number of vowels, perhaps as many as 18, depending on the dialect. So there's a way in which this, there's a kind of myth that gets perpetuated about Cambodian being somehow very difficult because it has such a rich uh, vowel inventory. It does have a, a lot of vowels, but it's not it's not out of line within the broad spectrum of, of the world's languages. But some, something that certainly was challenging for me when, when learning it was different distinctions between the vowels and Khmer. And was, what was really helpful is that I was learning the language at the same time I was learning to recite these, these Tarma songs. And that the kind of intensive 
language learning that I was doing concurrently with studying with Brumut and Gautran really complemented one another in terms of trying to get a, a hold on the phonological system of Khmer. And for me, whenever people ask, like, what is something, a tip that I think would be helpful for them in, in learning languages, for me, the fundamental point is that it needs to be joyful. It needs to connect with our need for connection and expression as human beings. And when we're learning a language in that context, something that where we're, say, connected to a text that we're reading, or we experience the joy of connecting to other people or expressing ourselves through a language. And in this case, you know, music is something that brings me enormous joy. So being able to connect language learning with music makes language learning not only easier, um, but it can increase the uh, precision with which I might be approaching learning the phonology of a new language. So I'm not sure if that's that's helpful for everyone. Everyone I know who who studies a language comes up with their own way that really works for them. But that's something that really worked for me to focus on listening and singing as a key way in to the pronunciation of different languages. Thank you, Trent. Yes the joy of learning and build up a emotional connection. Mm -hmm. That's very important because without that kind of foundation, everything, learning becomes a chore. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, let's move on to section three. I just really want to keep chatting about this section, but like section three, befriending death. This is not a section for the faint hearted. The sounds of full of wood we Westerners would consider as disturbing descriptions of the not-so-pleasant aspects of bodily processes and, you know, its eventual disintegration. I would say that as, as, as a collective, we who grew up and live in the global north, we abhor death. We try to avoid even think about it at all costs. Out of sight, out of mind. But this group of songs, right, they talk about death matter-of-factly. It's a natural part of life, which totally kind of amazes me. And the most intriguing part for me is song number 25, A Lesson in Meditation, based on the well-known, wait for it, Satipatthana Sutta, the foundation, four foundations of mindfulness, the core of many secularized mindfulness training programs in today's universities, commercialized apps, and it. In this poem, this song, as you mentioned in part three, this, uh, in this accompanying note, it is part of a deathbed ritual in Cambodia. It helps the dying to visualize and meditate on their own pending demise and go them, encourage them to work on their own nirvana through the use of these hard syllables, metaphors of songs, moons, nimitas, or signs in meditation, like rays of yellow, white, green lights and stuff. So Trent, please tell us more about the significance and role of death related, um, you know, in meditation ritual practices in the life cycle of Cambodia culture. Many of the Dharma songs included in this book, especially those in the befriending death section, are intended to be recited for the dying, or in some cases, after someone has passed away. And rites connected with the dying, with those who are very sick, uh, are something that has 
changed a lot within the past century or two of Cambodian history. And part of the reason of that is, is not hard to guess. It's connected to the medicalization of death. Um, and this is something that has been traced uh, very effectively in the case of Northern Thailand in the work of Scott Stonington. Um, and in the case of how changing ideas around how to care for the aging has been, we see that in the work of Felicity Alino, for instance. Um, part of what I was trying to do in the dissertation was to unpack how some of these concepts and rituals around caring for the sick and the dying show up within the manuscript tradition and the Dharma song tradition. And one thing that was a bit challenging for me is that a lot of these practices are not so commonly performed today. They're described in detail in texts uh, published in the 1950s, 1960s, even into the early 1970s in Cambodia, um, but have not been described by Cambodian or foreign anthropologists since that time. And the Dharma the songs within this tradition, including, for instance, the text you mentioned, the lesson in meditation, some of them are no longer performed today. So this text, A Lesson in Meditation, is one that I found in two manuscripts from the early 20th century, but um, I have no record of um, anyone who still had memorized this text or knew how to perform it uh, or was using it actively. It was never reprinted or published in any form in Cambodia. And so... I'm sometimes hesitant to try to describe in detail how such texts were used. A lot of um, work has to be done on an inferential level. But what we can describe is a kind of normative structure for how uh, one is expected to care for the dying with these songs. And that is um, one begins by creating a clean space. Uh, usually for the person who's very ill uh, to uh, lay down in a room at their house, or in, in many cases, this is the whole house in houses that are one room in the Cambodian countryside, and to create a small altar, uh, maybe cover the walls with cloth or wallpaper, um, to hang up or these hung banner paintings of different scenes of the Buddha's life, so that a visual space initially of that's conducive to the practice of reorienting the mind to uh, this sense of pasada, the sense of settled clarity uh, within and confidence within the three jewels of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha is created. Then once that ritual space is there, uh, either lay people or monastics may recite these kinds of Dharma songs. And the melodies being quite long due to the melismatic approach that's taken where many notes are used for just one syllable means that a number of the 
text translated in the book, which might be, you know, at the most 10 or 15 pages in the book, the very longest ones, would take three hours or more to recite if done in the traditional fashion. And typically this would take place beginning the evening and continuing through dawn, uh, such that at that time, the both the person who is very ill or who may be dying and is given up on the hope of a normal medical recovery um, can attune their mind to the sound and the teachings within these particular chants. My own teacher, Purum Ud, emphasized that in the 1980s, uh, this is right after the end of the Khmer Rouge era in 1979, and between the period of 1975 and 1979, where over one and a half million uh, Cambodians died in all forms of religious practice, certainly including the Dharmasang tradition, but all forms of religious practice and most cultural practices were entirely prohibited. This was a period uh, beginning in the early 80s where there was a resurgence in, in Buddhist activity. At the state level, uh, ordination was highly restricted in the early 80s, um, and only a few men were able to ordain as monks. But at the lay level, there was a lot of interest in Buddhist practices and in caring for those who had died and in caring for the dying and for the very sick. And Purumut told me that during that time, he would often chant in these night-long rituals to people who were very sick. And instead of being a journey from life to death, it was a journey of healing. And they would recover after a number of days and live for another few years, in some cases, even five or 10 years. So there's a way in which traditions of healing are very much connected to caring for the dying. The manuscripts themselves also describe what to do as the person's faculties, the person who's dying's faculties, uh, gradually fade away. And as in many traditions around the world, it's understood that the faculty of sound is one of the last, of hearing, is one of the last ones to fade away for someone who's dying. And so the importance of maintaining continuity of chant is very much emphasized so that the thoughts of the person who is dying are oriented towards the kinds of merit that they cultivated over their life. And if they had practiced particular meditation traditions, for instance, this text, A Lesson in Meditation, is really for those who during their life had uh, practiced this form of esoteric meditation. Um, and then at the time of death, are able to recall their meditative attainments to take the mind through those stages of meditation if possible, so as to assure the most fortunate rebirth possible. Wow, thank you so much, Chant. It's such a rich tradition, and it just like totally changed the way you frame or think about that's the mind side about it, right? It can be a spiritual experience, can be a part of the process, and can be also a healing ritual. I don't know about you, I just want to like accumulate tons of merit so that when I die, I'll have like similar services. <laughs> Um, of course, like primarily, I want to make sure that my meditation is strong enough so I don't probably, you know, help not to need those assistances, but like probably I will. So I hope I have enough, accumulate enough merits. So uh, friends, Kaliya Mitras to, you know, 
help me to get my mindfulness back. So, um, yeah, such a rich tradition, um, and also said that this kind of um, um, ritual practice is slowly, you know, change and dying out. But I guess it's just like part of the process, like nothing lasts forever. Um, section four, chasing peace. Is again emotionally charged, but this time full of happy emotions, uplifting calmness and quietude. So, listeners, if you don't feel quite up to the task of swallowing the bitter pills of death meditation in the previous section, maybe you can start your reading from this one. So, Trent, you mentioned at the end of your short intro on page one forty nine. If we are to chase peace, we need a road, a set of line marks, and a vision of the goal. And this final cycle provides us with such a map. So, the, for the benefits of of those who have yet to pick up the book, could you please sketch out for our listeners what is this map presented here, and how to emotion dimensions right of peace, and such as like feelings of safety, well being, ease, pleasure, silence, and release. How do they function in leading us on this path of liberation? So the study of liberation or salvation, soteriology in a theological sense, is something that's very much at the core of this section of the book. In other words, I was trying to select texts that showed the range of soteriological orientations、uh, within the Cambodian Buddhist tradition, and. These include, at the very you know basic level, this tripartite framing of the three attainments: the attainments of human beings, the attainments of the gods, and the attainment of nirvana. And one could think of these as three kinds of uh, felicities, uh, three kinds of goals that are constituted by the well-being. And happiness、uh, that they bring to those who attain them, and that's of course operating within this structure of、uh, many of these texts being meant to be recited at the end of life. So, in addition to reflecting on the process of death, one is also invited to make aspirations, or the Sanskrit term pranidhana、um, is quite operative here, pranthian and kamai. So to make an aspiration in this context,、um, there are actually two different kinds of aspirations that might be articulated in these、uh, Cambodian Dharma songs. One are what we might think of as negative aspirations, that is, aspirations to be free from certain kinds of karmic consequences in the future, to be free from bereavement, to be free from illness, to be freed from states of woe. And another kind of aspiration are those that are positive,、uh, those that are about attaining certain states, certain conditions for happiness, certain kinds of rebirth, or certain kinds of ultimate soteriological goals. And so, each of the texts in that section sort of lay out different possible goals, and it's bookended by two texts:、uh, one called "Lotus Offering to Reach Nirvana." And another that I translate as、uh, "Lotus Offering to Reach Buddhahood," and 
these are in Khmer. These are often just known as under the same generic title as Motum uh, or sometimes Labak Motum. That is the the text for offering a lotus flower. This text is really associated with Buddha image consecration ceremonies, which sometimes can take place after a funeral, sort of completing this cycle from death into new life. But they may be recited in end of life rites as well. And the first one, this this text, Lotus Offering to Reach uh, Nirvana, um, exemplifies some of those um, kinds of aspirations. In this case, centered on what we might think of as the the ordinary soteriological goal or the normative one within a Theravada tradition, that is to reach um, enlightenment as a arhat. And uh, it's framed a little bit also in terms of some negative aspirations. So just reading from this text, it says, here we're all bereaved, worn out, beat up, broken, whirled by worldly life, sundered from our spouses, we're bound to suffer in rounds of birth and death. No one can help us, ours alone, the anguish. We offer these flowers to you, Lord, so that we might from fault be freed and break the grip of age, flee the pit of pain, leave death in the dust, and one day delight in nirvana's repose. May our prayers fly straight, made true by honesty, real bliss, May it come for us all, step by step. And here, this real bliss that's being described is the bliss of nirvana, of attaining arhatship, presumably in some future existence. Many texts frame this around hoping for rebirth during the time in which Maitreya Buddha, the future Buddha, um, preaches the dharma uh, uh, again in this world system, uh, so as to uh, reach awakening um, under Maitreya Buddha. Other texts, however, and this is quite important within the Cambodian tradition, emphasize this uh, somewhat loftier goal of Buddhahood. And so we see this being expressed in this text. That's the final one in the volume, Lotus Offering to Realize Awakening. I think I said before, Lotus Offering to Reach Buddhahood, but here I'm translating it as Lotus Offering to Realize Awakening. Um, and this uh, begins with this um, gesture of offering a lotus flower. When it's recited in Kamai, it sounds something like this.
I cup my palms in humble prayer, my ten fingers and their ten nails, joined like the petals of a lotus made from airy sheets of gold. With joy in my heart, I offer this lotus bud, ready to bloom, mud-borne blossom, stalk and stamen, hands to my brow. I bend down low. Then the text continues with this sense of supplication, of offering uh, to the Buddha. And once we get a few stanzas in to the text, in real time terms, about 15 minutes into the text, and it's recited with a very slow melody, that's about as far as this text is ever recited in Cambodia today. But in manuscripts and in evidence also connected to epigraphic sources going back to the early 17th century, uh, we see that a long aspiration for Buddhahood then follows. And the aspirations here are about not just this goal of Buddhahood, but all the qualities of being a Buddha, of being some kind of perfected human being. And so the road here is expressed in terms that really might remind us of certain kinds of uh, Mahayana ideas, but here it's really happening within this Theravada context. May I be kind toward all creatures, giving them gifts with firm resolve, without any hesitation, just like great Prince Vasantara. May I be like Prince Damia, my heart always patient and pure, may my mind glow with goodness, pleasing to both men and women. Should some commit capital crimes or be condemned to endless pain, may I free them from such rulings so that they may regain their lives. May I exchange my life for theirs, just like all Buddhas have resolved. May I serve as the guarantor for all creatures, their last refuge. May I be skilled in every way, impressing all in every place. May I be skilled in every art, like the craft of Vishvakarman. May I recall the three Vedas and all their spells to perfection with total ease and efficacy, like Lord Shiva, best of the gods. May I be blessed with a brilliant mind, my answers to riddles roundly praised, my resolution of doubts so marvelous they raise the hair of all around. May I awaken to the vastness of the Dharma while still young, memorizing the three baskets of the canon in seven years. May my voice be resonant, resounding with sonorous tones, charming the ears of all who hear, just like the voice of Lord Brahma. So when I chant the true dharma, my voice astounds the gods on high, hailing them down from the heavens to rejoice in the Buddha's teachings. And so this many turns in this road, the many steps given in the path to awakening come to a kind of culmination in this text. And even though it's one that might not resonate as much for Cambodian Buddhists today, who might by and large articulate a different kind of soteriological orientation, we see very much these aspirations to Buddhahood uh, right at the center of this tradition in Cambodia, also elsewhere in Southeast Asia throughout the centuries. Thank you, Trent. This is so fascinating. Um, just like there's just full of these aspirations, right? It's just like it, it's not just like dry abstract thinking, just so full of these affective emotional dimensions and then full of joy and peacefulness. It's really just feel like paths of liberation is paths of joy. 
Um, but in the interest of time, we need to move on to part two, which contains four very accessible essays. I'm mostly interested in the essay, The Word of Cambodian Buddhism. Here you lay out the five axes of this living tradition, virtue and debt, arhats and buddhas, merit and sin, the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, gods and ghosts. And each one surprises the uninitiated readers like me, right, in very different ways. For example, you just mentioned um, the Lotus to uh, Awakening, um, the Buddhahood, like it surprised me in the sense that it sounds, those aspirations sounds just like so similar to the Bodhisattva was. I grew up as a Mahayana pure land Buddhist. Um, and then in this essay, you also mentioned that some Cambodians, right, they they actually wish to become Buddhists themselves, not just to be reborn in Maitreya, the future Buddhist Sajita heaven as a student, but to get there and receive a personal prediction about their own future Buddhahood from Maitreya personally. So um, it's probably not wise to ask you to reiterate what you wrote here, but for the benefits of those yet to pick up this book, could you please mention maybe one or two things the readers and future scholars, aspiring scholars, might find surprising and want to learn more and do more research about? So the aspirations you mentioned, I think, are one part where I hope there will be more research done in the future. And I think there's a particularly interesting aspect around gender there, the gender of who's performing, the gender of who's listening in the way aspirations might be articulated differently for people across the gender spectrum. So one you know, moment I remember vividly when talking about these texts with two very learned Buddhist laywomen uh, in uh, a Buddhist bookstore in Phnom Penh a, few, a number of years ago. I was trying to understand like the aspirations in these texts, particularly for Buddhahood, is, is that something that everybody is aspiring towards? And they each replied, no, um, but uh, certainly for some people it is. And then for instance, uh, one of the women said that, you know, my, my hope, my aspiration is to be in the future, um, a or the kansai sarapot, kansai sarapot uh, means the consort. Kansai is a very archaic Khmer word for woman or wife, and sarapot is the Khmer pronunciation of sarvagnya or omniscient. So it means the consort of the omniscient one. That is to be yasodra bimba, um, to be uh, this not the mother to the Buddha, which is another aspiration that we see, but specifically to be the Buddha's wife and partner throughout samsara along the path to awakening. Of course, not for Siddhartha Gautama, but for some other future Buddha. So I think there's much more to explore in terms of what's happening within how people articulate aspirations and how those map on to their own particular lives and embodiments in the world. Something else that I try to get at in that essay is dealing with this question of repentance and the relationship to negative karma, or sometimes framed as bapa, demerit, or sin. And here I'm, I'm really drawing on insights I gained from Olivier de Bernon and also my Cambodian colleagues, uh, the late Gun uh, Sopiep um, and also uh, Leng Kok An, who were sort of two of my 
uh, most important mentors in the study of Cambodian manuscripts and of the um, esoteric dimensions of uh, the Cambodian Buddhist tradition. And something that they each in different ways uh, brought out to me were the ways in which texts, um, including you know, one that I, I translate for the book as, um, it's called Liabab uh, or Absolving All Faults, has this very particular orientation to karma. And that is to be a human being in this world means that we will inevitably harm others. It's not possible from this perspective within the tradition, to lead a blameless life, to lead a life that does not harm human beings or animals. And because of that, we have to come up with ways of expiating or repenting or moving beyond those kinds of demeritorious actions. Um, because this is still within a, a Buddhist framework, but what, you know, what does it mean when uh, these kinds of actions are not something that can be avoided? It's sort of it's a different take on a kind of uh, ethics of virtue that insists that while really a perfect human life is to take on a certain set of moral disciplinary practices to be able to avoid any kind of harm to others, but what if you know that's not the way life is being framed? So that's that's one thing I'm trying to get out there to give an example of that. This uh, from this text, um, uh, absolving all faults. It goes through. It's kind of like a life review from birth to death. Like you know, what does it mean to live a life? And here it's imagined as a particular male life and rural Cambodia at the time in which this text was composed, probably the 18th century. Um, but nevertheless, it imagines all the different ways that that life could go, beginning from the moment of conception um, and all the ways that we may have harmed our mothers, our parents, our family, um, our teachers, and then also the way that when we take on roles as teachers or take on roles as farmers that we are harming others in some kind of, you know, inevitable way, you know. So as a, you know, a teacher, uh, I sometimes think about this phrase here. When I was 21, ordained as a full-fledged monk, I chided and scolded my novice charges, telling them lies to help them learn. In my anger, I snapped at them, my face all red. I glared down at my students, hoping they'd beat their ignorance. I didn't hold back. Even with my slow-witted kids, I shouted and swore, desperate for them, to learn to read the text. And then it goes into hoping to absolve those kinds of demerits or sins. And to me, this is not the approach that I take to teaching in the classroom, but it it points to a certain inevitability around pedagogical structures as constructed in a particular period of Cambodian history. Or I also think about the way it describes uh, in very vivid terms, the elaborate and exciting uh, temple festivals that take place at particular times of year in Cambodia and the ways in which those festivals are 
completely at odds with particular rules of the Vinaya or how lay people are expected to behave in monasteries. And yet, a text like this is not saying that those festivals shouldn't take place, but rather to acknowledge that this is something that is part of our lives. And yet, we need to acknowledge if the harm that it might cause. So absolve this fault. On holy days, I failed to keep the eight precepts during New Year, Pachumban, this is the annual ritual for paying respect to ancestors, and the rains retreat. During these times, I boxed, wrestled, wore ogre masks, held whips and shovels, drank in the temple, and defied the Buddha's words. Cart races and elephant rides, hair in a turban, shoes on my feet, a parasol above my head, a boast about my shuttlecock game, my hands clutching a sharp chisel. I did such sins and more at the temple in every life. I made offerings while slouching against the wall without a care. I spit and acted thoughtlessly within the Buddha's own abode. Forgive me, Lord. Save me, Master. I now take leave of all such sins. When monks chanted sacred texts and preached the Dharma, I didn't listen. Chin my palm. I chatted with my neighbors, thinking of other places. And so I think there's still a lot more to unpack about this particular perspective around karma in this tradition. You know, what I did in that essay is just an, an opening to this, but there's there's a lot more to explore there. Yeah. Thank you so much, Trent. This is like so amazing in the sense that women has different aspirations, totally different kind of liberation aspirations. I never thought about it. I'm very sure that in Mahayana, it's just like women can aspire to become a Buddha, just like you have to change into a male body at some point. But this is totally different ways of understanding the path of liberation and the question about what happens to ethics if you realize the basic fact that it's impossible, it's just literally impossible to live a blameless life as a human being. That we have to eat, we come out of our mother's womb. Um, even as teachers, we do our best at the moment, but it's only at the moment, right? Then maybe 20 years later, we look back, ah, I should have done things in a different way. So all this negative karma that we consciously owe, unconsciously accumulating what do we do wow this is just so mind-blowing i'm just so happy we get a chance to chat um but we've taken a lot of your time now is there anything else in the book that we didn't have time to discuss here but you'd like to highlight for the listeners and readers something that i i'm hoping to do more in the future is to sort of understand the responses of Cambodian Americans who are using and engaging with the book. And this is sort of part of the way I framed it. And it's not something that it's showing up all the time in the book, but it was always at the back of my mind. And so the book to me is, it intends to be more than just this particular object, but as a, a tool for interaction and communication. In uh, one thing that really moved me was that some Cambodian Americans and others have, have donated generously to distribute the book to Cambodian American communities um, because there's really very little available in English, um, you know, particularly 
published by a, a mainstream Buddhist publisher that's about Cambodian Buddhism. And, you know, that's part of the responsibility that I, I felt in trying to put this book together in the first place. But I've just been so moved by that uh, generosity. Um, the Cambodian Buddhist tradition, you know, like uh, uh, other you know, Buddhist traditions is really based on a kind of dana economy. And it's that culture of giving that allows, uh, from a Cambodian perspective, the, the dharma to keep moving. And so, uh, you know, the book is both that kind of trying to fulfill this aspiration of my teachers, uh, but also trying to respond to what I heard was a need from a particular community. And to that end, I'm really hoping that it's not a final statement or translation of any of these texts. They're the texts in Khmer are so much more than any way I could put them into English. And I have found in sometimes when teaching chants from this book, for instance, uh, Chen Xinghan and I are leading a course connected to the book um, at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. We did that last year. We're going to do it again this year. That it's in that space of interaction where in a group of Cambodians and non-Cambodians, we get to recite these texts together, you know, often in, in English. We get to experience them through the voice that the, the book, as it's intended, you know, really comes alive. So if there's you know, one part that really isn't in the book, but is about uh, how I, I hope the book has a space to live in the world, it's, it's there. You know, on the other side of things, I love the details of manuscripts and of the kinds of philological tools that are necessary to study these texts and compare them across different versions. And um, some of that detail has ended up in the notes and sort of the, the history of these texts in the back of the book. You know, much of the rest of it, you know, didn't make sense in a book like this and is just in the dissertation. But um, I think the other kind of hope I have in, in connection to the future of this book is to sort of work with more scholars in Cambodia and also in other parts of Southeast Asia to study these kinds of vernacular Buddhist literary traditions in more depth, um, to find the kinds of parallels across different Southeast Asian traditions. And that requires you know, groups of people uh, reading together, just as in the context of how I see the, the, the living sonic dimension of the book requires groups of people chanting together. In the, the philological dimension, really it's about how can we uh, find new ways of connecting to the immense uh, manuscript heritage of mainland Southeast Asia. Thank you, Trent. Yeah. Um, so the book is meant to be a beginning, maybe a way to start building those chanting old um, reading communities, not just for Cambodian Americans, but also for everyone who are interested in this culture. And I'll make sure, put the note that I put the link to your Bar Center, Bar Center of Buddhist Studies course in there, 
So maybe in case some of us、um, get interested in going there, but I also want to add that a plea to the teachers: this is wonderful teaching material. Even if just like teaching intro course in Buddhism, one or two of the sons, and then you know reading material, the company notes would be great introduction.、Um, so last question before we part our ways, I'd like to ask one last traditional New Books Network question: What are you working on? What keeps you busy now? At the moment, I have two kind of major projects that I'm embarking on.、Uh, one is connected to the intellectual history of translation in mainland Southeast Asia, particularly from the 15th to 19th centuries, and the other is looking at parallel chanting traditions of short poems in Thailand and Laos. That is parallel to the Cambodian Dharma songs. So for that latter project, I'm really just in the beginning stages of it, and for me, the beginning stages means immersing myself as much as I can and listening to to these traditions and to first try to enter them through this door of sound,、um, and then in a few years, as I、uh, feel it's possible to say something, to try to begin to put an analytical framework around. The history of this tradition, the aesthetics of how these kinds of chanting practices work in Laos and Thailand, particularly with these often today lay choirs of、uh, women who recite these kinds of texts. So that's that's one project that's developing. That's in a sense a sister project to Until Nirvana's Time, but in a different geographic place. For the first project I mentioned on the intellectual history of translation in Southeast Asia, that's the one I'm working on more intensively at the moment. And here, I'm particularly interested in the technology of the bytext. That is the Indic vernacular bytext that combines. Portions in Pali or Sanskrit with a vernacular language like Thai,、uh, Khmer, Lao, Burmese, etc.,、um, to create this、um, particularly effective mode for philological,、uh, exegetical,、um, homiletic, and、uh, literary practices in Southeast Asia between the 15th and 19th centuries, and. Sort of looking at as a as a kind of technology, a technology of language and textual transmission, I think allows us to find the kinds of rich and abundant parallels with other forms of bilingual or bi-textual practices across the pre twentieth century world.、Um, certainly, we see parallels in the context of medieval Europe,、uh, the ways in which、uh, Latin manuscripts were. Read with vernacular language annotations,、uh, the ways in which classical Chinese has been historically read, or even up to the present read in Japan and more historically in Korea and Vietnam, in ways that combine、uh, the these classical and vernacular worlds together.、Um, my, you know, aim for the book then is to put these. Manuscript traditions, particularly in Thailand and Laos, but also Cambodia and other places in mainland Southeast Asia, on the map as a key mode of Buddhist textual production, one that mediated between the Pali world of scripture and commentary and the kinds of you know vernacular. Exclusively vernacular poems. I was translating them in this book. It's really this intermediate realm that is so important for 
translation uh, both between classical and vernacular and also between different vernacular languages and traditions in mainland Southeast Asia. Thank you, Trent. Um, this is just like amazing book, amazing projects. I'm just looking forward to do another interview with you. But thank you again for writing this current book, Until Nirvana's Time, um, for sharing your insights, for the solid scholarship behind it, and for the kind of the intellectual labor um, to bring this to the public to hopefully engender many new kinds of ways of engaging with this knowledge. And I hope your work, right, um, both the, the dissertation and this book, bite size your ongoing projects. There's like public facing projects and then scholarship projects, right? I hope your work really, I mean, at least it does to me, right, really compels me to rethink about how we should institutionally and politically transform the conditions under which knowledge is produced so that important translations like your work and the preservation of certain kinds of traditions and knowledge from other sides of Buddhist traditions and public scholarship would be appreciated, rewarded, and hopefully continuously to be produced and valued um, in this world. So thank you again, and I'm looking forward to talk with you soon about your new book. Thank you so much, Jessica. It was such a pleasure to have this conversation with you, and I'm so grateful for your questions and your insights as we had this chance to discuss together. Thank you.